Did we um did we talk about Hamilton? No. I to go see Hamilton. I know you bastard. All I said, I only know that, knew that you were going because you were tweeting about it. I, I tweeted the um there's a little there's a little girl sitting right behind us and she was about I don't know like six, seven, eight, that kind of area. And uh, before the show even started, she's like jumping up and down and really excited going, this is the shit. (laughs) And her mother next to her turns and goes, what did you say? (laughs) And she she turns and looks her down the eyes and just says with renewed enthusiasm, this is the shit. Double down, double down. (laughs) (laughs) So straight away, it's like, okay. Lynn Manuel Miranda, you're this better blow me away because this night has already started off on a high. <laughs> and and it, it did. It was very good. Totally lives up to the hype. They changed some things for the London version. Really? Okay. Yeah. Don't, t- don't tell me. Don't tell me. As they're I'm- like t- tiny one word lines, like they change, they say vice president instead of John Adams. They say vice president is, isn't even a real job anyway in um, one of the songs. Yeah. And then at the end, at the very end, there's a bit of a bigger change uh Hamilton actually shoots Burr square in the face <laughs> and then and, and wins the duel and then has a 20 minute rap about how good he is with guns and how big his penis is it's crazy <laughs> and becomes president for life and becomes president for life it's nuts <laughs> I'm going to be seeing it in, in February so then I'll know ah, they'll probably have changed it back by then so don't be surprised if it's the normal ending right 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 give it Four thumbs up. My lowest rating yet. (laughs) News. News. Have you heard of a term in politics called the silly season? Yes. Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong, but this is when all of the politicians are on holiday and there's just there's not as much news as normal, so newspapers resort to writing about more sillier things. Am I right? Exactly. Exactamundum. So Nailed it. That so is, we're in silly season. We are in silly season. What happens is the parliaments go on recess. This used to be back in the days when you had to like get a carriage across dangerous roads from your constituency into the capital to represent your people and then you'd only you'd have to go home to the to the homestead for months in the summertime. Mm. to get back in touch with your people. So that's kind of like where the tradition comes from. At the moment... Is that it's, not what it's like right now? Uh, no, no. Oh. Well, like, I mean, oh. if you're if you're in the UK, I mean, maybe if you're in the north of Scotland, it's a bit of... <laughs> right, a tippity-tippity-top. Yeah, it's a, it, it is a more of an inconvenience than if you're the MP for Kent, where it's like a two-hour <laughs> drive from London, compared to like, I don't know, probably about an hour, 11 hours of trains and planes to get to the Hebrides or mm. whatever it is. But apart mm. from those people, and especially in Ireland, when the furthest place away from Dublin is like at the most, maybe five hours, if you're at the very tip-top west of Cork. Yeah. There, there isn't a TD for the tip-top west of Cork, so... <laughs> <laughs> that's, no, that's the, that, that's the name of his constituency. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, it's it's kind of just tradition, and I guess if you have a job where built into it, <laughs> teachers, t- teachers, <laughs> there is an ability to take a lot of time time off for a long period. You're not mm. going to give it up easily, so that's kind of how it is. Yeah. So the UK Parliament, the Irish Parliament, both went on their holidays, their summer recess. The UK ones actually, there was a little bit of a controversy back when they were pushing a heap of controversial Brexit bills through about two weeks ago. The mm. government actually suggested having the recess five days early or maybe three three days early, and the MPs actually had to vote down getting themselves early holidays. One, because they wanted to actually 
do the Brexit stuff yeah. and two because it would just look ridiculous if they were to vote to give themselves more holidays. Yeah, the fallout from that would be nothing good. Yeah, it just would it would made it, it would have made them look bad. It was a very badly played political tactic by the government and it was just it was it was silly. It was a silly thing to do before a silly season. <laughs> so what what kind of stories are we getting now in silly season? In the UK it's still all Brexit because the um, But like the, silly like, Brexit. No, like full on serious Brexit. <laughs> it's still all tariffs and yeah. borders and all that crap because Brexit's not going to go away until the deal is done. Mm. Um, the Prime Minister met with the Austrian Chancellor for a couple of high fives and a Mozart concert before she went on her Italian holidays. Nice. Um, That's the Austrian equivalent of a big bag of cans. Yeah, exactly. Um, the Irish one, there's kind of, it would be the silly season with absolutely nothing to talk about except the presidential election which happens every seven years is giving us something to talk about. Mm. But it's still kind of silly because it's always, this person is now seeking the nomination and you're always like, who? Who? What? Who are you? What? Ah, you're not going to win against Michael D. This is, this is silly. Bono? Really? Who knew? Bono would be the worst president. Oh, I would campaign against anybody against him. Anybody. Anybody. Even the edge. (laughs) That would be the best campaign ever. (laughs) Bono versus the edge. <laughs> oh. uh, yeah, and then the Americans actually, they are a little bit stricter. They're more like, you know the way when you work in America, you get, I don't know, three days annual leave yeah, at the most. something tiny like that, yeah. Compared to us slacker Europeans. Um, the American Congress is kind of the same. They don't really, they've actually voted this, this year to not take an August recess. So they're going to work through the summer. Wow. Yeah. It's like a sort of shitty summer camp for politicians. <laughs> well, it's their regular job, so they don't even get to do it. It's like a the shitty Irish summer ca- camp for politicians. There is a shitty summer camp for politicians <gasps> in Ireland. What the is McGill, it? The McGill Summer School. It's <laughs> a week a week long conference of talks in Glenty's Donegal, which is pretty remote, mm. and it's basically just a whole load of journalists, politicians, and retired politicians talking about whatever they want to talk about, and then. Having a couple of pints. And chasing each other around with super soakers. Probably, because there's fuck all else to do. It's ridiculous. <laughs> they got into it, it made a bit of a headlines this year because they actually had hardly any women. And like in the wake of the Eighth Amendment referendum and all the other mm. wokeness of, of the age, people were like, that's kind of bad. Yeah. And I think the leader organizer of the thing doubled down by saying he couldn't find enough qualified women, which was just a stupid thing to say. Oh. Uh, yeah, I think at one point they actually had, they made a mistake where they had a conversation about the problem with women in politics or like not having enough women in politics and yeah. it was only men speakers. Oh no, no, <laughs> so, yeah. not uh, like this, no. That, that's about as exciting as that thing gets though. It's yeah. usually pretty dull and dry. I'd like, I'd like to go. Um, I don't know, it's like 11 no. hours of talking for no, five days No, what you do is you go and you spike the punch bowl and the whole thing turns into like a sexy teen American movie. I don't know if I want to see Bertie Hearn jiving or like doing twerking twer- oh Jesus actually not twerking let's move along oh, okay there's a bit of serious news Donald Trump is tariffing the world right Every, everyone everyone is his trade enemy so <laughs> he's, he's he's declaring that all the other countries in the world think that America are like the bank that everyone wants to steal from and plunder so his retaliation in that is to put trade tariffs on everybody China Canada, Mexico, the EU, feckin' everybody is getting tariffs put upon their goods. Do you know what a tariff is? Yeah, it's it's a tax on imports. Yeah, exactly. It makes it makes buying something more expensive if it comes from outside basically to discourage people from doing it and then to try and technically then encourage you to buy something domestic. Mm. Um 
the world trade system since the 80s has really gone against that and countries have worked really hard to break down as many of these trade barriers as they can. So this kind of lurch towards protectionism, it's called, is is special and new, which is what Donald Trump is famous for. <laughs> it's special and, and new. He, so it's very sugarcoaty way of saying it. Yeah. It, like, I mean... It is. This is an interesting thing because this isn't normally like Donald Trump is obviously a right wing politician, but this isn't exactly a right wing policy. It's more like Bernie Sanders would also be in favor of these kind of tariffs, and they're against massive trade deals internationally because they think that they just help the corporate interest rather than those of domestic workers. Mm. And Donald Trump kind of agrees. This is one of those weird things where he straddles both sides of the ideological divide. Well, I don't like the idea of Donald Trump straddling anything. I know we got Bertie Ahern twerking and Donald Trump straddling. It's all sorts <laughs> of gross. Basically. He put these Trump, he put these these tariffs down, and every other country just immediately says, "Well, fuck you, we're putting tariffs down as well," because that's mm. usually what happens. And then it turns into a trade war, and Donald Trump thinks that trade wars shouldn't be afraid of. You shouldn't be afraid of them because it's easy to win them and other such stupid comments. But it should be noted that both of the world wars were preceded by massive spikes in trade wars. It's not good. It is usually a indication of bad times happening between massive countries, especially when you have countries like the US and China, of which there are hundreds of thousands of books written about how Mm. it's inevitable that that's going to be the next great conflict. It's not good to see them put billions of dollars of tariffs onto each other's goods. No. And and these tariffs in the scale of other, say, trade wars that have preceded it, like how does it compare? It's up there. Yeah, it is. Oh, really? Yeah, the US have put billions of dollars worth of tariffs on Chinese goods and the Chinese have responded by putting huge tariffs on American soybeans. Which it turns out is like a massive core of America's export products. Really? Yeah, it's huge, especially to China. Like America, like make a fuck ton of soybeans and they export 90% of them. Wow. Especially a lot of them over to China because a lot of Chinese food is based on soya. Yeah. It's it's a staple part of, of in fact, most countries' diets. It, like it goes into so many, so many different products and stuff these days that it's like a, a really important part. And... American work uh, soybean farmers are looking at maybe 40 to 50% losses this year compared to last. Oh, Jesus. Which is big. And these will be dudes that had traditionally supported the president. Yeah. Oh, my God. Life-changing changes. We'll see what happens. It's it's going to be interesting. Hopefully, they manage to figure it out. The EU were targeted by different things because Trump was like, you guys are being mean to us, so this is my retaliation. Um, Jean-Claude Juncker went over there last week and apparently they agreed to stop tariffing each other while they have renewed talks whether or not that actually leads to anything and doesn't just break down and turn into more tariffs because that's usually how Trump works right so yeah messiness messy 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 I'm going to go for a silly season story now and I'll say that we found water on Mars yay they've actually found a massive lake of liquid water about 12 kilometres underneath one of the ice caps can't remember if it's north or south it's salty and it is most definitely still liquid, slushing around. Did the rover find this? Uh, no, satellites. The European um, Space Agency, Italian scientists were studying the thingies and they found it. Wow. Would yeah, you move so to Mars if they started a colony? You're given the all expenses paid one way trip up there. Would you do it? No. No, me neither. Sounds awful. Yeah, especially because you're probably going to have to ride with Elon Musk and he just sounds like a dick. <laughs> he's just not, he's not been doing too great lately. No, um, I I wouldn't, but I would hope that my great grandkids would be able to Yeah, in a more comfortable way. Yeah. Probably by the time we're elf fellas, there will be some sort of active colonization project going on. But the first people going over there are going to be like the first people that went to the new world in the US. Mm. 
um, it, it'll be really shit and a lot of them will die yeah. <laughs> and have really bad times. And then we kill the natives. Yeah, but I mean, it's it's, it's either going to be the Martians from Mars Attacks or the, the little guy from the Looney Tunes. So either way, they're not nice, so it's okay. We can get yeah, rid of them. as long as that Ward World. Yeah, or, oh no, because that, that, well... It worked out for us eventually, but it still wasn't nice. The world worlds ended by those aliens getting a cold. Like, that's how yes. that resolved itself. Yes. So. But that's really stupid, though, isn't it? <laughs> that's, that's my point. It is very stupid. Anyways, um, the reason I'm mentioning this in a politics podcast is that we spend way too much time talking about things like tariffs and trade wars and Brexit and all these things when we need to keep an eye on the future, people. Yeah. Space future. Why does nobody talk about the, the politics of space colonization? Yeah. Somebody should make a po- podcast about that soon. The politics of space would be a fucking great episode. Exactly. That's why we should do that soon. Yeah. But um, we're not doing that now. Adding it to the list. We're not doing that today, though. No. What are we doing today? Uh, refugees. Refugees. And refugees. you're going to talk to me about refugees, or are we going to get a guest? We're going to get a guest, because I don't know so much about refugees. Obviously, I know it's a... It's a big issue, getting bigger, more important, more media coverage, etc. Mm-hmm. But it would be, it would have made a lot more sense for us to contact somebody who knew a lot about it. And luckily we did. Yeah, we did. Who did we contact? We contacted Nanjala Nayabala. She is a humanitarian activist, mm-hmm. a journalist and political analyst working in Nairobi. Mm-hmm. An author. Author. Yep, pretty much. She's, she's one of those. We seem to quite often get people to do an awful lot of things very well. Yeah. And including talking about the subject that we want to talk to them about, which luckily that is certainly what happened this time. So you guys are in for a treat. Yeah, it's a good one. Including crazy Nairobi bus drivers. Oh my God, yeah. So it's worth saying up top, I'm just after finishing editing this, there is some, shall we say, textual ambience (laughs) in this recording of, uh, of urban traffic. But not just normal urban traffic, like quite melodic and musical urban traffic. You'll hear it when we get into it. But I've edited down as much as I can. Um, but I think, just think of it as immersing yourself in, in, in the city and not so much as being bad audio and you'll yeah. be fine. Okay, now here it is. Hello. 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 Yay. Hooray. <laughs> Hooray. Man, it's Skype is so complicated. It's so complicated. It's a Murphy's Law thing. Absolutely. So, thanks very much for joining us. Um, there was trouble at the supermarket, was there? There was a lot of people at the supermarket. We have terrible traffic during the week, so everybody tries to get their shopping in on Saturday morning. Oh, wow. Um, and then, yeah, the queues kind of tend to wind around the supermarket. Um, and then the lady in front of me had like... 50 items in the express counter. I was really... Oh. I, I was miffed. I'm not going to lie. I was miffed. Yeah, of course. That's, yeah, that's... Yeah, th- this system only works on trust. Mm. Just ruin it for everybody. I know. I hope you, I hope you punched her in the back of the head. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely the appropriate yeah, and best... Right. W- <laughs> well, maybe that's why you're late. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're taking this... You get one call in prison and you're taking it to dial into a podcast. I know. <laughs> Next time. Next time. Next time. We should probably do proper introductions. <laughs> yeah, we do have we do have a tendency to ramble on and then go. Oh yeah, we, we're doing the podcast now. By yeah. the way, all those terrible things that you said beforehand—they're on tape. Yeah, yeah. So, oh yeah. By the way, we're recording. So all that stuff about you being in prison—that's in the show now. I'm not in prison, mom. <laughs> <laughs> Great Wi-Fi access in the Nairobi jails. Must say. Yes. <laughs> so we are here with Nanjala, and um, she is a writer, humanitarian advocate, and political analyst based in Nairobi. Now, is this is that the full list? Because usually when we have very prolific guests on the show, I'm always worried we've left something off the list like you're not like secretly a ufc cage fighting champion um, or something i have to check 
let me call my agent. Maybe I ask and she hasn't told me yet. <laughs> Why are all my Saturday nights booked out for the next month? You know, it could be that I, I maybe I'm like sleep cage match fighting. <laughs> Do you wake up sore? Yeah, that might just cover it, I think. Um, I'm also a bad baker. Oh. If that kind of helps. I'm terrible at baking. But you do it anyway. Um, but I do it anyway. You know what? Because I have faith. Oh. One day it will all make sense. Richie, that's like us on podcasting. That's like exactly like us on podcasting. <laughs> One day the planets will align and everything will be just cheap. Yeah. So what's your favorite bad thing to bake? Chocolate chip. M&M cookies. Oh, fuck, they sound See, amazing. See, even if you fuck that up, you can just eat the c- composite ingredients. And like... That's the thing. Yeah. That's it. Exactly it. It's so good. And they usually end up running into each other. So I end up with like a giant cookie. Sounds to me like you're very good at baking. <laughs> All things considered, they're worse things to end up with than a giant cookie filled with chocolate chips and M&M's. Yeah, exactly. If that's, so, fa- if that's what you're considering failure, then I think you're doing pretty okay. It's a six out of ten. I'll take it. Yeah, you just got to change the format. Rather than being like individual cookies, you say, no, I definitely intended to make this big slab of cookie dough and chocolate. Yeah, cookie slab, anyone? <laughs> cookie slab? I only have one, so... <laughs> <laughs> but we're not here to talk about cookie slabs, are we? We're here to talk about refugees. Very serious issues. Very man. serious issues. So let's start off. Let's keep it basic. Um, Manjala, what is a refugee? A refugee is a person who has been forced to flee their country of origin, country of residence, um, because their country, um, the country where they come from or the country where they reside, is unable or unwilling to provide them with protection. That's like the basic legal definition. That's Mm. the refugee law definition. In 1951, after all of the trouble with the Second World War, you know, one of the things that used to happen routinely um, between 1938 and 1945 was that European countries would hand over their Jewish citizens and residents to the uh, Nazi regime and they would deny them citizenship. So like Denmark handed over almost all of its Jewish citizens to Germany um, and they would end up, you know, in concentration camps, um, gas chambers, etc. And um, after the Second World War, everybody looks around and goes, guys, we probably shouldn't do this anymore. This seems like a really um, mean thing that we're doing here. And so they come up with a refugee convention, which defines legally, puts it in law and says, okay, this is who a refugee is. If your state is unwilling or unable to provide you with the protection that you need, then we're going to create a legal system that says other states have to take you in and give you that protection and just be like a stand in state system for people who are vulnerable. But that's the definition that everybody who signed up for the refugee convention ratified it and said, we totally are, we're 100% on board. That's the definition that they're using. Was this agreed at the UN? This was agreed at the UN. So the UN Refugee Convention from 1951, um, the first section basically defines a refugee. The, that's the headline definition. And it also defines stateless people because there's also a whole group of people. There's like, I think, I have to check the latest figures, but at last count there was like 50 million people that might be an overestimate that their states didn't refuse to give them citizenship and this has come up last week remember the thai boys who were stuck in the cave 
like three of them are stateless. That means that the Thai government doesn't recognize them as citizens of Thailand. They don't have passports. Oh. They don't have access to any kind of a lot of the privileges that you take for granted as a citizen, right? Like being able to travel outside the country and, you know, be able to cross an international border, being able to open a bank account, being able to join a library even, you know, because all of these things are tied to you having identity documents mm. and they only give you identity documents if they recognize you as a citizen. People, um... minivans called matatus and basically our public transit system and they every year they come up with a new way of being more annoying this is a bus <laughs> i'm like so far away so i can only imagine what it sounds like if you're actually in the minivan oh my god man it sounds like it'd be a party oh that's that's the only way i want to get around london from now on. <laughs> um anyway yes convention. that is who a refugee is <laughs> <laughs> So Nanjala, just say we're on one of these party buses together. Uh, I sit down next to you. We start chatting and I say the statement to you. Hey, the refugee crisis started in 2015. How wrong would I be and how much would you shout at me for saying something like that on the party bus? I might take a swing at you. I'm not going to (laughs) lie. It's wrong. Mm. The 2015 crisis that everybody's focusing on, the Mediterranean crisis, has everything to do with Syria. Um, even though the vast majority of people who are dying on the Mediterranean Sea are African, the big thing that tips the scale is actually an influx of refugees from Syria, from Turkey, um, what we call the Western route, uh, the, wait, never East, I have to decide, yeah, Eastern route. So there's three main routes. Were you doing never eat shredded wheat, that whole thing? (laughs) Look, I have other skills, it's fine. So the Eastern route, there's three routes. On the Mediterranean Sea, and they're all fairly old and fairly well used. The the Western route is goes from Morocco, sort of Theta, up to Spain. Mm. The Central route goes from Libya, Tunisia, up to Italy, and the Eastern route goes from Turkey, um, Lebanon, Jordan, into Hungary, um, Greece. Uh, those are the three main routes that are used by migrants and refugees who are trying to get to Europe. Um, these routes have been in use since forever. If you think about the trans-Saharan trade, which is like from the 15th, 16th century, there's been people who have been leaving the west coast of Africa all the way across to Sudan, crossing the Sahara, trading with the countries that are in the sort of what we call the Maghreb today, and then going back. That's the normal cyclical migration. Mm. You fast forward to the economic crisis in the 90s, and a lot of these people are like, look, I'm coming all the way to Libya. I've pretty much walked across the desert. There's nothing for me to do here. I'm going to try and get across the ocean because I hear that in Italy and Greece, there's all of these farms and they don't have farm workers and they don't have the you know oranges are rotting on the trees. I'm going to try and do that and then see if I can get back. And so from the 80s, uh, late 80s, early 90s, a lot of people started to make the jump. They started to cross um, the Mediterranean Sea. And as long as the European economies were doing okay, most of the countries looked the other way. They knew that it was happening, but they looked the other way because the numbers were negligible Mm. in the context of end of Cold War. I mean, you're talking about wars in Somalia, in Afghanistan, in um, you know lots of different parts of the world after the Cold War. There's this explosion of war. So. 
2,000, 3,000 people crossing the Mediterranean Sea a year isn't such a big deal in that scheme of things. The big thing that happens that changes it is the Syrian war, because a lot of people had been leaving Syria, 2010, uh, the Arab Spring sort of era, had been staying within the region. They had been leaving Syria and ending up in Jordan and Lebanon and in Turkey. But the numbers, people just kept coming and the numbers kept getting higher and higher and higher and higher. When the Hungarian government, uh, sort of that line of countries, um, the Eastern, former Eastern Bloc countries that are now in the EU, decided to clamp down on people who had been walking from Turkey into Europe, a lot of people took to the sea. And that's what really drives the spike in numbers, because you know, there was a lot of clandestine, again, not in the millions, you're talking, a couple, you know, a couple of thousand people, because it's a, it's a long walk. Um, and it's only the super fit people and the super strong people who are going to attempt it. But once those borders became super strict, then people started to take to the sea. Unlike the people who are using the central route and the western route, this is a new route that's opening up. You know, the boats are completely unseaworthy. There's a lot of people taking advantage of very vulnerable people. That's when the deaths really, and that's 2015, when the deaths really start to go through the roof because the dinghies just are not designed to survive. Mediterranean is a very unpredictable sea um, very moody and can be really dangerous. And if you remember the image of Elan Kurdi, the three-year-old boy who yeah, washed yeah. up on the Greek Sea, that's part of that wave of people who unable or willing to remain in Turkey are trying to join family that has already managed to get to Germany, has already managed to get to France has already managed to get to relative safely because the frontline countries are super hostile. Hungary, the Ukraines, the Belarus, they're super hostile to the crossing over on foot. And that's the migration crisis that people are talking about, the spike in debt. But because of the efforts that have been made on the eastern route, especially a lot of negotiation with Turkey, Turkey has agreed to take in a lot more Syrian refugees. Attention has now shifted to the central and the eastern route and the west routes which have become more dangerous because the frontline countries on that side, Italy especially, but also Malta, uh, Spain, there used to be these rescue missions like Mare Nostrum, where the Italian Coast Guard mm -hmm. would find boats in distress and would rescue people and say, take them to safety before eventually they would either deport them or they would give them refugee status. Italy suspended Mare Nostrum around the same time because of this increasing rhetoric of there's going to be an influx, there's going to be an influx, there's going to be an influx. We're going to be overwhelmed by people. That was what made the central route especially much more dangerous because people kept coming. A lot of the people that you're thinking about have been walking. If you're talking about someone from Senegal making it to Libya on foot or by car, they've been in the desert for the better part of three or four months. So they don't know that Marinostrum has been suspended. They don't know that nobody's going to pick them up once they get stranded on the ocean. All they know is that they left Senegal, they left Nigeria, they left Ghana with the vision of finding some kind of work, some kind of safety, some kind of livelihood on the other side of the of the sea. So there's a lot of people who just kept coming despite the fact that these programs were suspended. And that's when the NGOs like MSF and Open Seas and all of these people step in the gap because 
whether Italy sends the Coast Guard or doesn't send the Coast Guard, people are going to keep getting on those boats and and people are going to keep dying. Um, and that's what we've seen these last three weeks because Italy stopped allowing the MSF boats from uh, bringing people to their ports. And because they were unable to restock and refuel, they were unable to be out on patrol. And last weekend, 400 people died um, because there was nobody there to help them pretty much. Um, so long story, but um, the basic takeaway is migration across the Mediterranean predates even this Cold War, uh, post it's a post-Cold War thing, but it even predates that. Um, what's changed really is our concept of borders and our concept of citizenship. And the lines in the sand have become much more strict and the borders have become a place of intense contention where states, especially as Europe opens up internally, starts to harden externally because that's the only place where your Europeanness um, can really be militarized and can really be enforced is at the border. And that's why in refugee migration circles, we call it Fortress Europe, because that's what they've been trying to build for the better part of the last 10 years. Um, so. At the basic level, you've, you've described what someone has to do to get from Nigeria or, or Senegal to get to the Mediterranean, walking through a desert for three months. And then that's essentially the safest part of the journey because then they have to get onto a tiny dinghy and try and cross the Mediterranean. So what is causing people to make the choice to, to make that kind of a journey? Like what what is the home situation like and why is it how is it so bad that they have to actually make this this journey to look for a better life? You know, honestly, it's... It's not, it's, the whole thing is a mess. It's not, I wouldn't even say that. Sum it up in three words. Yeah. Everything is terrible. (laughs) That's usually how we end the podcast. We'll get there later. (laughs) Oh, the reason why I say this is when Muammar Gaddafi was president of Libya, a lot of his thing was that he would negotiate with the EU or he would threaten the EU. There was one time he went in 2010, he said, if Europe doesn't drop the sanctions against me, I will send so many uh, migrants to Europe that the whole of Europe will turn black. He used to use these people as leverage to get concessions from the EU. And Sarkozy played along with that. And that's part of the reason why he's facing jail time right now. Um, He used to play along with this um, gambit with Gaddafi. And so same with Berlusconi. Wait, sorry, um... Did you meet Sarkozy is facing jail time because of deals that he did with with Libya? Oh, he has a whole like dodgy. There's like a, the French, the, they issued a warrant for his arrest, like I think three months ago. Yeah, I heard about that. Yeah. His dodgy dealings with Muammar Gaddafi oh. and taking money from Saif, the son of Gaddafi, for his campaign, for his presidential campaign. It's all a mess. Like I said, everything's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> but... Take a step back. What happens is a lot of young people in sub-Saharan Africa, we've seen, especially again, end of the Cold War, uh, what we call the structural adjustment programs, which were in World Bank from the 80s um, all the way through to the early 90s, the Washington Consensus. These are economic policies that the World Bank imposed upon um, African countries because they said, your civil service is way too big. You're spending way too much on education. You're spending way too much on healthcare. If you want to be eligible for World Bank loans, 
you're going to have to cut, 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 cut spending on all of these things. And so a lot of sub-Saharan countries in the 80s, late 80s through the 90s, you see a shrink in investment in education, in healthcare, in the civil service. And a lot of economies take a big hit because of this. At the same time, population rise is astounding. Africa is the youngest continent in the world. In sub-Saharan Africa, the average age is, I think, 20 in my country, it's 19. In Uganda, wow. it's 17. God. In Niger, it's 17. My God. So the youth bulge is bananas. 60% of Kenyans are below the age of 35. But we have no universities. And there is not enough arable land for all of us. We have this other phenomenon, the land, we call it the new African land grab, where actually which don't have arable land, they come to African countries and they buy vast tracts of land and they use them to grow food. Sounds good, sounds fair, except if you're a young person and you can't get a university education and you can't get a farm, you still need money to pay for healthcare because your healthcare is no longer free. And you still need to really grow as an adult and have a meaningful livelihood and have a meaningful experience. But there's nothing around you. What are your options, right? You can sit there and wait for life to destroy you or you could move. And this is the part that I think also gets lost in the European conversation is the vast majority of people who are on the move in Africa are, remain in a continent. I think last year it was about 10, 15,000 who attempted to make the crossing into Europe. But if you think about it, what does it say about a person that they would wake up in the morning and walk across the desert? The people who are making this journey are mostly young, like the circumstances that they're leaving behind are just they feel completely squeezed because they don't really have options left. We punish people for being poor in a lot of our countries, um, because in Kenya, for example, I can tell you that being poor also means that you're criminalized. Poor people are more likely to be arrested for petty offenses. We had one guy who was jailed for two years because he stole a bottle of lotion because he didn't have a bottle of lotion and he wanted to go on a job interview and the lotion was worth $7 and he is going to be in jail for two years. Oh my God. So it's things like that. It's things like that that people are facing. It's that you are going to be poor, you're not going to have much, but then your country is going to criminalize them. And it's like, let me just go try and make a life for myself so that I, I can at least have some dignity. Taking it back to the Mediterranean, is there a culpability of European countries for you know our past and present wrongs against the people of Africa and the, and how that kind of fed into all of there this? Is a, there is a culpability. Um, like I said before, it's, it's this fortress Europe idea that's making the Mediterranean super dangerous. Like it would not hurt Europe which has the capacity, has the manpower to pick these boats up, like save people and keep them in safe place. And if you, if after a year or two years, you find that this person doesn't qualify for refugee status, then send them back. Mm. We have to, at some point, decide that human life is more valuable than protecting political fiction of, you know, statehood. But there's also a more immediate culpability with Libya, and with the Europe's relationship with Muammar Gaddafi. Gaddafi was no saint. He was not a good man. I would never go on record as defending. Um, he represents a lot of things to a lot of people, but he definitely used African people as leverage against Europe and the threat of African migration against Europe. And the culpability is that Europe went along with it. All the way until the week that Gaddafi was deposed, 
Nicolas Sarkozy was making deals to try and protect him because of all of the money that Gaddafi had put into his re-election campaign. <laughs> like, there is what we're seeing, the fact that Libya has become ungovernable, the fact that there's so much political violence in Libya, the fact that people are being exposed to kidnapping and slavery and all of these things has everything to do with the fact that the political um, intention of overthrowing Gaddafi was not for the good of Libyan people, but was for to satisfy the political desires of various European governments and North American governments because the US is also implicated in this. Yeah, I mean, you, you could say the same thing about what's going on in Syria in the Middle East. As I mean, the Syrian civil war essentially is an offshoot from the Iraq invasion. I'm not a, I'm not a, I'm not a pacifist. I do believe that there's such a thing as a just war. These are not just wars. These are not wars that are being fought to protect the people of that country. They're being fought for broader geopolitical concerns. And, you know, as a side note, to me, that has everything to do with our growing inability to realize that war happens to people, mm. not to defense corporation, not to military support, not to all of these abstract terms that we keep coming up with. It's people, it's families, it's kids, it's brothers and sisters and cousins. Those are the people who suffer when, when countries fight. And so, Really, that's where the culpability, Europe's culpability comes in. But then when it comes to trying to solve the problem, you see European governments offering money to people like Omar al-Bashir in Sudan and Esaias Afwarki in Eritrea. Do you know that Eritrea has the highest number of African migrants attempting to get to Europe are from Eritrea? But at the last estimate, Eritrea's population was like 5 million, mm. smaller than the city of Nairobi. So what is it that's happening within Eritrea that makes so many people leave? It's an authoritarian regime. There's compulsory military service, indefinite compulsory military service. There is no freedom of expression. There's no freedom of speech. One journalist has been in jail since 1990, so 17 years, since 2000, is the longest imprisoned journalist in the world, is Eritrean. Um, and the European government says, well, we don't, we're freaking out. We don't want any more Eritreans. We don't want any more because they go through Sudan. We don't want any more people coming to Sudan. Let's just give Afwerki and Bashir a ton of money and that will make things better. It's not making things better. They're taking that money and pocketing it and still exploiting people and still selling people, migrants and refugees between the different countries. You know, in the conceptual, in the conceptual plane, this has a lot to do with the changing definition of refugees and who is a refugee. Remember the definition that I said at the top mm -hmm. was very it was very much based on the idea of war as a thing that happens between different countries. And so it was about, hey, Denmark, maybe stop, you know, sending your Jewish citizens to Auschwitz. No. In the last 20 years, 30 years, civil war has become far more common than international war. Most of the conflicts that are being fought, in, especially in the developing world, are internal conflicts. If your definition, if the very strict legal definition says whose state is unwilling and unable to provide them protection, what if the person who is threatening you is also from your country and is a non-state actor in your country? What if it's like a militia group? A refugees practice, refugee protection practice has been struggling with this for a long time because they say, well, victims of civil war aren't eligible for refugee protection because that's just like a general state of state collapse or victims of climate change aren't eligible for refugee status. So 
there's a lot of people who are stuck in definitional limbo. Um, and Eritreans are a good example of this because there's no outright conflict. It's not that people are being are fighting like there's a war or that they're they, as of last week, at least they're not at war with Ethiopia, hmm. but their states trying to kill them. <laughs> like to put it quite simply, their government is trying to kill them. Is it is it true that the the largest um, um, collection of refugees are Eritreans in Kenya? Is that true? Um, in Kenya right now, it's Somalis. Somalis. Yeah, we, Kenya until four years ago, five years ago, had the largest population of refugees in Africa. We had one point. One million refugees. We had Somalis, South Sudan, Rwanda, Burundi, Ethiopia, Sudan proper, Democratic Republic of Congo. And so we had the two largest refugee camps in the world was Kakuma and uh, Dadaab. We've become increasingly hostile. So we've been sending people back to Somalia the last few years, which is completely unconscionable. But we've also been receiving a lot of Ethiopians because Ethiopia has been a, a pretty unstable for the last two years. But right now, Ethiopia has the largest number of refugees because they have a lot of Eritreans and they have a lot of South Sudanese and they have a lot of Somalis as well. And then it's also equal, it's equally true to say that most of the, the refugees from the Syrian war and perhaps the the wars in northern Iraq as well, they don't actually travel to the Western world. Most of them are in the neighboring countries. Absolutely. There's so many Syrian refugees in Lebanon that this changed the demographics of the country. Wow. Isn't it true that there's, there's more Syrians in Jordan than Jordanese people? Yep. Like, there's yeah. so many that they've actually changed the demographics of the country. And, you know, when uh, there's so many Afghani refugees in Pakistan that they would be like a constituency, like a, they would be able to have like their own, um, uh, you know, state, like within the country, like a federal state. Yeah. Like when Europe talks about if every single person who was attempting to get to Europe made it and got citizenship, it would raise the European population by 1%. Whoa. 1%. That's <laughs> nothing. It's nothing. It wouldn't, it, the only thing that people are freaking about, out about is because these people look different. They're not white. Mm. But there's not, most people don't, the Somali British poet has a, uh, Wasan Shira has a great quote. Nobody leaves home unless home is a mouth of a shark. Yep. Nobody wants to be a foreigner by force. Nobody wants to leave yeah. family, their friends, their memories, their joys, their hopes, their dreams to go and start again if they didn't feel like this was the only thing that was left for them on the table. If most of these young people who you're seeing trying to cross, and most of them are young and most are young men, if they could live in their societies and not feel criminalized and not feel the pressure of you're not a man unless you're able to provide economically, but there's nothing for you to do, you know? And you know, we talk about global inequality and how France wants to import timber from, uh, you know, Cote d'Ivoire and destroy Cote d'Ivoire's forests, but doesn't want to take in Ivorian refugees. And, you know, the biggest export from the Central African Republic is diamonds. And the ongoing conflict in the in the Central African Republic has everything to do with the diamond, global yeah. diamond trade. Mm. So 
at a meta level, I think we all as middle class, for myself as a middle class African, but, uh, you know, who consumes pretty much on par with uh, Western middle class peers, but, you know, Europeans and North Americans, we have to ask ourselves these bigger, better questions, which is, what is my role in creating an, e- an equal system that makes life untenable for poor people across the world? And I think that's the tough question that people keep evading by keeping this on the plane of the abstract um, numbers and statistics and not like, hey, 3,000 brothers, sisters, cousins, uncles, mothers, fathers, daughters died in the ocean last year. Yeah. Like yeah. someone, you know, that, that kind of a thinking I think needs to also be on the table. For now, um, thanks very much, Nanjela. Yeah. Thank, yeah, thank you so much. This was, this was really good. I'm so sorry I couldn't have a happier subject. <laughs> oh, <laughs> next time. Don't worry. Well, we, yeah, we came to you. Next time we'll do an episode all about baking giant M&M cookies yes, and party buses. Yeah. And we'll just focus on those two things. England losing in the semi-final. Yay. <laughs> this is going to be released about um, two weeks after the World Cup final, but we will ask you, who do you think is going to win, France or Croatia? Uh, France. Only because Croatia, three extra times back to back. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's a lot. And these French kids, are you crazy? Kylian oh, Mbappé? <laughs> My gosh. <laughs> well, I uh, hope you enjoy watching the match tomorrow anyway. And thanks very much for taking the time to talk to us. You too. Thanks, thanks. Let's keep talking. Yes, we will. Let's do Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Okay. See ya. <laughs> Bye. 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 So that was it, Richie. That, so you learned that, a lot. That was that. I did learn a lot. That was great. That was, it was yeah. really sobering, as of course it was always going to be. But it was. Um, she's an excellent speaker and she did a wonderful job at broaching the subject. Can I just say, I, don't, I can't remember if I told you this anecdote off the air, but um, after we were recording, I was down, my uncle was visiting and I just mentioned I was speaking to someone in Nairobi mm. and he was like, oh, did you hear the buses? <laughs> he knew about the buses. <laughs> I was like, yeah. I was like, yeah, she's, she's just, but yeah, it was like, we could hear this noise. And I was like, what the fuck is that? A street party? And she's yeah. like, no, it's the public transport system here. And he goes, yep, I see the movie once and bus drivers just drive around all the time honking their horns. It's what Nairobi's <laughs> famous for. I never knew that. Apparently, yeah, I had no idea. Yeah. Jesus, and he's a pretty well-traveled guy, but he, he did see it on television. But yeah, that was, that was weird. Great. Yeah, um, that, I mean, there's other things to take away from the conversation. There is, yeah, like, like the big M&M cookie. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Lots of great stuff. Uh, but great episode, and thank you so much, Angela, for talking to us. Um, yes. What else? That uh, that it. That that be it. Let's let these people go. Let's. Um, yeah, but before we do, please, we would very much appreciate if you'd leave a nice five star review for us. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. So so five star reviews. So good. Five star reviews. Oh, that's gross. That was gross. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for the one star review for that. We deserve it. That's fine. <laughs> um, you can follow us on Twitter at What on Politics. You can send us an email at What on Politics at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. Um, I have taken it. down the Facebook group. So if anyone was using that or looking at it and now all of a sudden it's gone, you know why. We just, we yeah. just, we just don't like using Facebook. Yeah. I mean, if you do, fine. But there's other stuff. So yeah. whatever. Yeah. You can find us on Twitter. <laughs> Um, is that it? That's it. That's it. Cool. Okay, bye, Richie. All right. Beep 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 I forgot about the whole bus thing. I thought you were just being roadrunner or having stroke. What are the other? I can only smile on one side of my face. Isn't that a sign of something? That's a sign that you're really good at doing roadrunner impersonations. I believe. 
beep, 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 beep. That just sounds like Morse code machine gone wrong. Okay, bye. This has been a production of the Headstuff Podcast Network.